Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. Merry Christmas as we uh, come upon that. It's uh, Christmas week if you're listening in real time. And we wanted to do a special podcast about the birth of Jesus and see how uh, that fits in with the season. So does this mean uh, yeah. everybody else is, re- is listening in fake time? Yeah, well, we're actually not recording it in real time. So people are <laughs> oh, listening right. to it in real time. Because <laughs> you have that magic wand. That's... We, we do. Well, no, we don't believe in magic. That's a... Uh... That's another we podcast. don't call it that, but everybody else does. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, you know. hello, Rob. Welcome it's to the podcast. Nice. We already discussed this. Uh, so yeah, we wanted to do, uh, you know, something where we look at the the Jesus story, especially the birth story. Yeah. And you know, most of us are going to hear it at our churches. Uh, we're we're going to hear it if you watch Charlie Brown Christmas. You're going to hear it in some context. So maybe uh, tell it in a different kind of way mm. and, and talk about some of you know some of the context that's overlooked and specifically focus on Christ as King. And uh, which is oftentimes that's not, I don't know, that's not the way we usually think of Christmas time, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes we talk about it that way a little bit with the three wise men are coming because they're honoring him. As, but we really don't make much of the king part of the story that this is God becoming the king. So we really want to bring that out. Let's begin, let me ask you a question to start with, Vinny. What would you think the average person in a church like yours would say that the birth of Christ represents? Uh. I, I don't know if they would say it this way, but what they would probably associate it with is it represents Jesus being born so then he can later die to forgive yeah. our sins. It's, it's kind of like that that necessary starting point that has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what happens for most people. I think that's the tradition I was raised in too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is Christ becoming the as a baby so that, so that he can die for our salvation someday. Yeah. So it's basically like just ignore everything that happens in his life. Like, let's just get to... Let's, let's get to Passion Week. So N.T. Wright wrote a book called uh, When God Became King, or mm-hmm. how, how God Became King. How God Became King, yeah. And he talks about, well, if the story of the Gospels is about God becoming the King, God becoming the Savior, so he was born, why doesn't he just skip straight to the death of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Why is there so much, what he calls, stuff in the middle? You know, Matthew has 25, 20, uh, 23 chapters of, of the middle, you know, one or two on the birth, uh, maybe two or three on the, on the death and resurrection. Why... Why is there so much stuff in the middle? And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. It's like, because the middle is important. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and that's always my question too. Like if it was just about him dying, why didn't we just let uh, Herod have his way when he's a baby? Like yeah, yeah, born yeah, yeah. and just let him kill him. Like, Hey, we're done now. We yeah, Raise him from the dead. There you go. Or, or just have him being born as, you know, like Buddha walking and talking in a full, yeah. a full grown adult. He just appears in the earth. He's a full grown adult. He, dies well, he is the time. second Adam. So that would have made sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We kind of laugh about it, but but there's a seriousness to it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we we've really seriously minimized the significance of the story. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing about it is we've made that story about me, right? It's about him dying for my salvation. Yeah. Okay, so as we look at this, then let's. Uh, this is a huge concept. We could yeah. go. We could start. It's like finding a, a a door in a round room. It's like it could be it could be put anywhere, right? What are some of the the clues that indicate that the birth of Christ is to be viewed as the coming of the King? Why why would we even entertain this idea? So we can go to any of the Gospels to discuss this. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew might be perhaps the best ones to start with. Luke frames his Gospel with, I'm writing to you about what has been fulfilled among us. We find that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We find that in Luke chapter 
uh, 24 verses 45 through mm-hmm. 48, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So Luke, in both those passages says, this is what was fulfilled among us. In the first two chapters of the gospel of Luke, it's full of fulfillment. This, this was fulfilled, this was fulfilled, this was fulfilled. And it's clearly telling us the story of the birth of Jesus in light of the fulfillment. But what's interesting is, is that Luke tells the fulfillment story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, beginning with the story of John the Baptist, actually in light of the fulfillment of 1 Samuel. And you're like, 1 Samuel? We don't, you don't think of 1 Samuel as like this prophecy of the coming Messiah. But what he's doing is he's telling the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and then the story of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. And Hannah is a barren woman. Elizabeth is a barren woman who gives birth to Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel's kind of the first prophet, not technically, but so to speak. Mm-hmm. At least he's the first prophet that anoints the king, the first king, Saul, and then later David. And so Samuel's birth parallels John the Baptist's birth. And John the Baptist's birth, and both of them, they use references to them being endowed with the Holy Spirit. There's all these pa- parallels in Luke 1 from 1 Samuel. And just as Samuel anointed David to become the king, so John the Baptist is going to anoint Jesus to become the king. David parallels with the gospel of, of Luke and Jesus. But most interestingly, you get to Luke chapter 3, and it says he was 30 years old when he begins his ministry. And you're like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? And the answer is because David was 30 years old when he began his ministry. So you begin to realize the deeper you go, and there's a lot more parallels that we could go to, that the story of the John the Baptist and Jesus is being described as a story of Samuel and David, and Jesus is the, is the new king. So that's certainly the case in the Gospel of Luke without question there. But it's even more emphatic in the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. And I would even say, even though Mark does not include any birth narrative at all, mm-hmm. it, it assumes even that story right there of John the Baptist and uh, Jesus. And, it, you know, even using prophet language, and we don't have to go totally yeah. into Mark, but even, even right there, you have, you know, John the Baptist is the one preparing the way for Yahweh. He, you know, he's the messenger uh, preparing the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. You, you see that John the Baptist, Jesus parallel. So, yeah. The author writers are, or the uh, the gospel writers are picking up on this, even if they're not as emphatic and developing that theme out as much. It's there. Well, Mark develops actually quite a, quite extensively, right? We're just not going to bring it out in this because the birth narratives are in Matthew and Luke. Yeah, but yeah. Mark brings it out because, of course, this is the good news mm-hmm. of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Well, and I think we discussed this one time previously. The phrase "the good news" it's one word in Greek, euangelion, is actually used to describe the birth of Caesar Augustus. Mm-hmm. So in Mark's gospel, the birth of Jesus is actually contrasted with the birth of Caesar Augustus. And instead of being the son of the gods, it's the son of God. And mm-hmm. so Jesus is absolutely described as the king, emphatically in the gospel of Mark. That's the whole point. But it's an anti-imperial king. It's anti-Rome that, that he's looking at. Yeah, which would make sense if this was Peter's account, especially in, in writing maybe in Rome and, and maybe focusing more on that. Whereas then we get into something like a Matthew, which is he's probably writing to a Jewish audience. You definitely right. see that Jewish background. And right. he's going to tell the story just in a different way because he's he's writing to an, another audience that's going to pick up on some of the nuances that he's able to do in his gospel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So Matthew's gospel begins with this genealogy, which mm-hmm. is roughly, you know, you open it up and you're like, this is something belongs in the Old Testament. What's going on here? Well, when you look at the genealogy, there's one of the depths of it that we won't get into too, too much right now. I'll just kind of gloss over it. Is he's telling you the story of Israel. And it begins in verse two with Abraham. And then he goes to verse the middle of verse six, I believe it is, with da- and to David. And then verse 12, the deportation of Babylon to Jeconiah, uh, to Jeconiah. And we know that that's actually how it's, this genealogy is divided. It's divided with Abraham to David, 
David to the exile and the exile to Jesus. And we know that because verse 17 tells us, it says, therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And from David to the deportation of Babylon are 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the time of Christ are 14. So he tells us, look, I divided this genealogy by 14 generations from, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile and from the exile to Jesus. And what he's doing, he's saying, I'm telling you the story of Israel from the beginning of Abraham, Genesis of the, of the people of Israel, to the king of David, David the king, to the exile, and now to Jesus, meaning the exile is over, it's ending in Jesus. So that's one of the ways he's doing it. But secondly, he's also saying, note, he, he calls David the king, mm -hmm. I, to David the king. Oh, there you go. And Dave, interestingly, there's a lot of numbers that go on in the, in the biblical story. And one of the things that they do with numbers is called gamatria. And gamatria is that each word or each letter technically has a numerical value in Hebrew and in Greek. And so the name David, which would be the letters D, V, and D, come out to the numerical equivalent of 14. And so interestingly, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, probably, probably, can't be certain of this, playing off the fact that David's name is 14. And, and Israelites, Jewish people would have known that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the generations, if you go back to the book of Chronicles, for example, and you compare the, the genealogy listed here, there are actually more than 14 generations. Matthew intentionally skipped generations, omitted generations, mm -hmm. in order to have this genealogy of 14, 14, and 14. There aren't 14, 14, and 14 without omitting names. And you're like, oh, Matthew's deceiving. He's not deceiving us. He's simply embedding his story with this deeper narrative type of meaning that his Jewish readers would have got. Oh, look at 14 generations. It's Jesus. He's the king. Now, of course, the other part of that is it's seven times two. That's where you get 14 from. Mm -hmm. And seven being the number of perfection, that means you have six sevens. And that means the seventh seven, right? The, the millennial seven, if you want to call it that. or Jubilee seven? Yeah, there you go. Thank okay. you. The Jubilee seven. The seventh Jubilee, the beginning of the, of, of the Jubilee is beginning now with, with Jesus. So uh, very much so telling us the story of Jesus becoming the king. But then we skip down, and what I think is actually central to the Gospel of Matthew, the beginning of the story, it says, it tells us the story of Joseph. When it tells us the story of Joseph, it says, oh, by the way, in verse 23, uh, he shall be called Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Now, he's clearly citing the book of Isaiah and the prophecy in Isaiah that this child will be born, his name shall be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Now, we know, by the way, actually, his name, he names him Jesus. It says right after that. And they named him Jesus. Like, wait a minute. I thought his name was supposed to be Emmanuel. <laughs> no, this is the divine name, so to speak. And the divine name Emmanuel, interestingly, that the last part of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you take the genealogy off for a second, the first story in the Gospel of Matthew is the story of Joseph and Mary and the, and the baby being born and the baby being called Emmanuel. So God with us is this first story. The last story in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus going up on a mountainside in Galilee and telling his disciples, all authority is given to me. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the gospel begins with, he shall be called God with us. And it ends with, and I'll be with you always. There you go. There's your theme in the gospel of Matthew. What's the theme? Jesus is God with us, but not as this, like, we think, oh, that's the deity part. Well, he's God with us as the rightful king of Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key that Matthew's going to bring out there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too. You will call him Emmanuel. So we, we call him Jesus, mm -hmm. which also means Yahweh saves, <laughs> right? Yeshua. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Verse 25. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So one of the things I think that's cool about after that introduction in chapter one, setting up what we're having here, it you had mentioned how it's it's contrasting and uh, in, in calling us back. I guess not contrasting; it's calling us back to Israel and the story of Israel, right? But it's right. it's rooted in the genealogy, which is going to be different than even Luke's narrative, which takes you back to Adam, right? Mm-hmm. So right. so there's something specifically happened about the covenantal line here, and you you start seeing these parallels even in how Matthew presents his gospel and how he presents Jesus as this better Moses, right? Right. Which when when you start looking at Moses, I mean, this is the inception of the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. 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 So you're given, he's given a covenant. So it's a people now who have been taken out of captivity, who are going to be given a land. They've been given a constitution in their, in their covenant, right. In Exodus chapter 20, there are people you're going to see them numbered and taken a census because that's what you do with your military. Like it, this is the kingdom of God that's coming into, you know, be, being inaugurated in a sense. Correct. And so what you now start seeing in the book of Matthew is how Jesus is kind of this better version of that. Yeah. I'd say greater than right. Greater yeah, than. yeah. 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 You know, and, and there's so much that you could do with this, but even like you obviously have this flight to Egypt, <laughs> yes. right. In chapter two, where it's like, okay, well, obviously there's this Egypt connection. And then Jesus is going to come out of Egypt. I mean, there's so much here. You, you have a, a baptism of Jesus, right. Where you could like, okay, well, I'm thinking of red, the red sea right? right. And, the, and the people going through the water. You have Jesus being tempted now in the wilderness for 40 days, just as those people uh, were in the wilderness for, for 40 years, you have, it's Jesus successfully overcame temptation Correct. by, by adhering to the word of God. Right. right. Uh, and, and so in, no, it's like, I don't, I don't need to be tempted with the kingdoms of this world. I'm staying faithful to God. And guess what? The in, angels are ministering to me because of that. Uh, I'm not, I'm not falling for, you know, this, then you have, instead of what you see in the, in the Moses story in the Torah is Moses going up onto a mountain to receive the law from God. Exactly. Jesus goes up onto the mountain and servant in chapter five to give the law exactly. in a sense. You constantly see these parallels and you could, you could trace this in so many ways yes. where it's like, Oh, it, this is the kingdom of God being portrayed, but it, this is the better King. This guy's better than Moses. That's you know, right. he's greater than whatever, you, whatever adjective you want to say, like there's something specific going on here where he's fulfilling this. Exactly. Just to, to reiterate what Vinny just said in case I kind of went past you a little bit what is happening in the gospel of Matthew. And I covered this in the kingdom of God class that I'm doing also, that is also being loaded on the podcast. So some of you listening today may have actually heard it on the previous podcast. When I discussed the gospel of Matthew and the kingdom of God and the gospel of Matthew, what's happening in the gospel of Matthew is what Vinicius is, is pointing out is the story of Israel is being lived out mm-hmm. by Jesus. So Abraham comes from the North and comes down to Hebron. Joseph and Mary come from the North Nazareth and come down to Bethlehem. Uh, the baby's born there. They go then to Egypt Uh, Abraham goes to Egypt. They come out of Egypt uh, through the Red Sea where they're baptized. And Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized Mm -hmm. in the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Then the Israelites go into the wilderness for 40 years. where they're. I'm just kind of repeating you, but just make sure that everyone understands the story of the context. Uh, The Israelites were tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And Jesus, of course, was faithful in their temptation. And then Moses goes up on the mountainside and receives the law. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes up on the mountainside and gives the law. And of course, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Mm-hmm, this is what mm-hmm. the law looks like in its fulfillment, because Jesus is the one filling it out. And one of the questions I always I ask sometimes in different classes, I'll say, hey, why was Jesus baptized? Which is mm-hmm. not pertinent to this discussion here, but it kind of fits in the conversation we're having now. 
Why was Jesus baptized? It's because he is embodying Israel himself. The gospel of Luke specifically says it was a baptism of repentance for the mm-hmm. forgiveness of sins. What does Jesus have to repent for? He's repenting for them, mm-hmm. for their sins. He's repenting for the nations. We, we need to stop looking at everything so individualistically and look at things corporately. Jesus is embodying the nation of Israel. He is Israel. He's living out the story of Israel. And he's now bringing it to his consummation as the true David, though, as the true king. And of course, Matthew's gospel certainly portrays him as this new Moses. And we can't separate Moses from, and I think this is one of the difficult things in the Protestant tradition when we, you know, kind of parachute into the first century and assume everything is just legalism. And so, oh, Moses just represented legalism in this empty religiosity. It's like, no, that's the kingdom of God being established on earth uh, through the covenants that God had worked through people ultimately to point to Jesus. If you read the Moses story, Moses was actually called to be the king mm-hmm. and he rejected it. He, I don't want this. Well, he's going to be, I'm the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Moses rejects it. So there's a lot of kingship even in the Moses story. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. Where do we want to go from here on this? Because I mean, this could go so many directions. Yeah. Uh, so the first point, of course, is, you know, why do we bring this up? Is because we're celebrating the birth of the king and, you know, kind of skipping down to the end for a second. The whole point of that is, is the way God does kingship, the way God rules is not the way the world rules. If you compare the stories of the birth of a king with the story of the birth of Christ, the king, you realize this is not, you know, a king's going to be born in a palace, but he's born in a one-room house connected to a cave mm-hmm. in Bethlehem. A king's going to be born in Jerusalem. Even the wise men go to Jerusalem looking for the king. He's born in Bethlehem, an outskirts, you know, a small little shepherding town. You look at this at the context of it, and it's this is how God does power, and it's not the way the world does power. And it's a beautiful story of illustrating the how God does power. And then I think the next point of it would be that we're called to then go and do thou likewise. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of Jesus is not just him living out the story of Israel, it's him living out the story of Israel saying, Now you go live it out too. And Israel was called to be a light to the world. You're the light of the world. Now go live it out. And the way we live it out is in the humility of the birth. It illustrates so well for us the humility that God took on when he became human. Obviously, the cross does the same also. And that's exactly what we're called to do also. And so even when we look at something like a Philippians 2. Yes, that's the key. Why was Jesus uh, given the name above every other name? Uh, It's because first he did what he had a position that he didn't have to hold on to. He actually lowered himself like the servanthood, like starting with his birth. Yeah. Yeah. Vinny's referring to Philippians 2, 1 through 11 Mm -hmm. or 5 through 11, who being in very nature, God didn't consider equality with God a thing to be be held on to, but he became man. And then he become man. He he humbled himself even to the point of death, not even to the point of death, but even death on a cross. Mm You see God humbling himself, even though he was God by nature, he let go of that and became man also. And then humbled himself to death, even the humiliating, shameful, painful, excruciatingly painful death on the cross. And then it says in verse nine, therefore God exalted him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. Hey, Rob, anything fun coming up in 2022? Yeah, we're excited about what we're going to be doing next. We're going to start in 2022 and encourage you to join us studying through the New Testament. We might take more than one year to do it, but we're going to study the New Testament. We're going to start in the Gospel of Mark in the month of January. We're going to have two or three episodes in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to bring a scholar in to kind of go over the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to give you some homework assignments to do as well so that you can be studying the Gospel of Mark. And then in February, we'll do Matthew. 
we're going to work our way to the New Testament. So we're looking forward to studying through the New Testament in 2022. Awesome. Look for that. Now we'll get back to the show. And this is what you see, you know, even going back to the, the Gospels is it's this up t- upside down kingdom. The kingdom yes, of God looks yes. different than the world. And this means you actually take on shame. Uh, you know, if we were just continue reading on the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and you have a different ethic in terms of how you look at people it, lusting, right? It, it's not just the out- outward action. It's like, oh, the, the lusting, the thing that's happening in the heart. It, it, it's how you enact retaliation or the lack thereof, it, especially yeah. in a shame and honor culture. It's like, no, you just take it. And so actually you go to the point where you love your enemies. And how do you do that? You do it perfectly, just as the way God loves his enemies. This is the ethic of how the people of God are, are to live, because it's an upside down kingdom that really doesn't make sense in the world's economy. Right. And, and I think we would add to that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by saying, because again, what we're doing is we're reading this as, as Western individualism. And so, oh, so what it means is for my personal righteousness, my personal piety, I live this way. Actually, the kingdom of God is about by the way, the, the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount are framed with the kingdom of God. So the mm-hmm. first Beatitude and the last Beatitude are, are they shall inherit the kingdom of God. So we know that the sermon's about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus goes on to say is it's a kingdom of justice. We commonly translated it, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what we mean by righteousness in our modern world is our personal piety and our personal righteousness and personal holiness. But righteousness means justice. It's, it's mm. That dikaiosune in the Greek is this word that's used in the Old Testament to refer to justice. And so it's establishing a kingdom of justice, that there should be no poor among you type of thing, that we're going we're gonna to level the tables and this inequity of the power in Rome and the power of the leadership and those who benefit from Roman's occupation is going to be overturned. And we're going to go to the highways and the byways and invite the outcasts and the lepers and the lame and the widows and the orphans, and we're going to bring them in and we're going to provide for them. Climaxes, by the way, in Matthew 6, it says, you can't serve God and mm-hmm. mammon. And mammon is the way of the Roman. Mammon is finances, money, power, uh, comfort, security, wealth, prosperity. And that's what they aim for. But when you aim for that in the Roman world, and let's be honest, it's like this in most economies mm-hmm. as well, that's always at the expense of somebody else. Can we flesh something out that you just said? Because as you made that comment about in chapter six, where it says no one could serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And you said mammon. Mammon, that's the Greek. Many of our trans English translations are just translate that merely as money, which yes. which can have, it gives the wrong idea that it's just, okay, I, I just need to be careful about how I have this lust or covetousness for money. Right. But you included other things like power, you know, being greedy with finances. It's more than that. How how would you maybe describe mammon? I don't think most of our translations read that way. It puts it merely as money. Yeah. Let me me actually uh, bring it up, Vinny, on looking at a a comparison of the different translations. So the New American Standard says wealth. Mm -hmm. The ESV says money. Net Bible says money. NIV 1984 says money. A New Living Translation says money. New King James says mammon. So does King James. And then the new revised standard says wealth and wealth. mammon yeah. is actually not a translation. It's a transliteration. In other words, mm. The Greek word says mammon. That's how you would say it in Greek. So it's actually the English version of the Greek word. What they've done is they left it untranslated. And what they're saying there is that it's more than just wealth. So one word can't encapsulate it. So I'm going to give you the Greek word mammon and let you go figure out what it means. It's not a bad idea sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
for example, the Holy Spirit is called the Parakletos or the Paraclete. Mm-hmm. Well, because if we call him counselor, it means this. If we call him helper, it means that. The word Parakletos means kind of all of the above. Kind of the same idea. So the word in the Greek mammon for wealth, but it, it means essentially maybe the best modern day equivalent would be materialism mm-hmm. because it could mean land uh, that you've acquired. It could mean money. It could mean goods that you've acquired. Acquisition of things that is often simply translated as money for us because we've kind of monetize everything. But in the ancient world, to gain materialism, land, for example, you got it at the expense of somebody else. The way it would happen is you would simply, if somebody falls into, into debt and they're in need, you have the means, what you do say, okay, well, I'll go ahead and give you this, the, the money that you need, I'll loan it to you. And you loan it to them at an exorbitant rate so that as they reap products from their land, they're not even going to be able to pay you back and make a living. But which is the same des- thing that happens today, which is why people get sold into slavery. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you end up falling farther and farther and farther in debt and you end up having to sell your land to them and they mm-hmm. acquire your land. That's why the rich man who owned much land, it says in Luke 18, he owned much land. Well, how did you get that land? Go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. You know, the very people you took them from. Mm-hmm. It's an economic reversal of fortunes because you did it unjustly. See, in the biblical world, you could not charge interest. It was illegal to charge interest because you're taking advantage of somebody who's already in a desperate situation. And you certainly, you could purchase land from them and give them money for the land, but you couldn't own the land in perpetuity. You had to give the land back because when you give it back, you're restoring economic vitality to everyone. And that's kind of the whole idea. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Yeah, you can't serve God and wealth because your wealth is gained at the expense of somebody else. And I'm not here for the expense of somebody else. That's what it means to love your enemies. And if we read Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as personal piety, we're misreading him. Because he's, Jesus is talking about economic, social, reversal of fortunes for the sake of all and the well-being of all. Because that's what my kingdom looks like. In my kingdom, there are no poor. And you go to the book of Revelation, there's no more hunger. No more thirst, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because it's been restored. You know, I'm writing a chapter right now on um, hope in the book of Revelation for a book that's going to come out, I don't know, another year or more. And one of the points that I'm making is, well, the book of Revelation, of course, is great hope for all Christians because it's the second coming of Jesus and there's not going to be any, any more suffering, no more pain, no more death. But the more you experience suffering, the more you experience economic adversity, the greater it is when it says they mm-hmm. will hunger no longer. Neither will the sun beat down on them nor any scorching heat because the lamb and the sun, he will guide, he'll shepherd them and lead them to the river, the water of life and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. The more you suffer, the more hope that gives you. Mm-hmm. And to those who are ex- economically exploited, this is tremendous hope. If we don't read the book of Revelation, oh, this is a great book of hope. It's because we're not suffering very much. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of, and we look forward to the, oh, the, the second coming of, and the rapture when God takes us out of here. I've been doing research, reading some of the popular stuff. So I can just make a couple comments in my, in my chapter on there and reading how Lindsay, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so um, upsetting and disconcerting because their only hope is, yeah, it's going to get really, really bad. And then God mm-hmm. raptures us out of the way. It's like, don't you realize that leaves everybody else to suffer? That's not what God intends. It's not to take the Christians out of the way, but the Christians are the means to which God brings empathy and peace and hope and life 
and overcoming the suffering. We're supposed to go out there and go, hey, these people are hungry. Let's feed them. Hey, they're starving. Let's, let's reverse this. Not rejoice because it's a sign of the second coming of Jesus. So we've segued like three or four different times tonight, haven't we? But I hope this is working out for everybody else. Well, I think it's, it's definitely related because it's yeah. talking about like, because yeah. the question is, you know, we're, we're talking about the Christmas story and the manger story. Yeah, like, yeah. What is the purpose of these things? And right. it's not merely just to just to die so we could go to heaven. It's like, no, that, that is that, but it's more than that. It's yeah. we're leaving a lot out, leaving a lot on the shelf. If we don't talk about these other things. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. And the point, by the way, for those that are listening, these are not in our notes that we share with each other, no. but it actually, it's a really good point because when we talk about Christmas, we don't usually go to these places, mm-hmm. but this is exactly what the Christmas story is about is God becoming a baby in Bethlehem, not King in Bethlehem, not a King in Jerusalem mm-hmm. and not in a palace mm-hmm. that was built at the expense of somebody else. Yeah. yeah. And not a king 3000 years from that point either, <laughs> yeah. which is a whole, uh, you know, another eschatological story, but yeah, it's, right. it's, it's not just something that happened now that we got to wait for, for 2000 years, but uh, yeah. It, yeah. It, well, it's a me, kingship me... that's already been inaugurated. Exactly. Cause Jesus says, Hey, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over those in authority, mm-hmm. but not so with you. And I was, I'm making you king. in Luke's gospel specifically, he says, I'm making you Kings and you're going to rule, but you're not going to rule the way the Gentiles do. They lord over those in authority, but not so with you. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. When you're kings, you submit to the sake for the sake of the other. We can add to this, by the way, why was Israel not supposed to have a king? Hmm. It's because when you get a king, they're going to enslave you. Mm-hmm. They're going to take your land. They're going to have these big palaces. They're going to do all these things at your expense. That's why you shouldn't have a king. But we want a king like all the nations do. Okay, great. But you know what's going to happen? And even Solomon, what does he do? Mm-hmm. He starts, he sold off land and the inhabitants of the land to the king of Tyre. Hey, you can have, you know what? I, I just don't like Connecticut any longer. You take <laughs> it and all the people in it. Let's bring some stuff home and yeah. some really practical things. So what we're not trying to do is flame pastors who are going to preach a Christmas message. No. That is not this. Help our audience now. They've, they've heard this and now they're going to hear a Christmas Eve or Christmas morning uh, sermon in a couple of days, how could they use this to hear that sermon and not get frustrated? Cause well, my pastor didn't talk about this because yeah, what their pastor is yeah. talking about, it, there's true stuff there. It's not like they're probably teaching a false sermon. Uh, it, it's not this, but how could they use this to help enlighten themselves as they, and, and process through those sermons? Even as you process through the sermons, I would say, take what you hear about Jesus and realize that's, this is what Jesus is calling me to do or, and us to do as well. We're supposed to incarnate like he incarnated to the world and for the world. I came for the world and this is what it looks like. And so we are to model ourselves the way he modeled himself with the act of humility and charity and grace for others and for all. Uh, Well, how would you answer the question? What, What would you say to that? I'm actually not sure. I'm partly asking the question because I'm thinking like, what am I going to do when I hear, and I don't know how my pastor is yeah, going to preach yeah. it. And I, right, I, yeah. I, I love hearing my pastor preach, but it's like, okay, how, how am I going to process through this in light of our conversation now? Yeah. Well, I would process it that the way I just said that we process this as the birth of the King. This is my King whom I worship. And this is what my King looks like. And if that doesn't sell in the marketplace of ideas, like, oh, well, I'm not really proud of your King. I, I, I want one in Rome and you know, in a capital city and with glamour and splendor and crowns and jewels. Okay, great. But do you realize that all that wealth and power that you are idealizing came at the expense of others? Hmm. 
Herod's palaces were built at the, at the expense of slaves. And it's incredible what Herod did. Mm-hmm. Instead, we have a king who cares about the other and who incarnates for the sake of the other. That's what our king looks like. So that's, I w- that's how I would internalize it. Now, let me also make a segue no- note on this because you got to cut your pastor's slack here for a couple of reasons. One, they might not have been taught this. Let's just be honest that even our translations uh, of our Bibles and, and oftentimes our seminary books, the textbooks, we teach the story the way we've been told the story. And unless you get unearthed it, oh, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. They don't know better, number one. Number two, sometimes they know better, but they're stuck because they've got a full house on Christmas Eve, one of the two times a year that all these people come in and they're expecting to hear a story that's a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I have preached sermons. I had someone come up to me one time after a sermon was over on Christmas Eve. And I told him that, you know, Jesus was born in a house and here's what it looked like. It was a one room house and there was no room for them in the guest room side of the house because that was just a small little place cut off with a curtain, Cataluma. And so they, they put him in the larger part of the house. And this person came up to me after the end of the service and said, why did you have to ruin my manger scene? And I'm just thinking, um, I have, I think what I did say to him was, I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. And I didn't go any further than that. What I wanted to say was, hey, if you bought a manger scene thinking it was like some, you know, that's your, I don't, sorry, but that's just the way you've been marketed. But that's the problem is as soon as you say something like that, it upsets everybody because, oh, that's just not this Christmas story I've been told and you're ruining my Christmas story. Well, I'm sorry, but this Christmas story is actually a little bit more important here because well, and it's kind of the gospel. This, this really does is the moment you could appeal to Charlie Brown and Linus, where it's like the commercialism that has completely yeah, yeah. <laughs> like affected how we view this thing. So how much of the Christmas story is actually biblical and how much of this is what Coca-Cola and you know the companies who create you know, advent calendars and manger scenes that you could, you know, plastic manger scenes that yeah, you put in your yeah. front yards. Like how much are, how, have we created a theology based on that? Yeah. And, and we need to be okay with saying, okay, well that that's just not right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And there's part of this that I would say, okay, we can embrace that. We can embrace, you know, the Christmas scene of Santa's and all that, whatever you want to do with that. That's fine. You, you mm-hmm. can Christmas tree. Let's, let's do that. And I would also say, by the way, that let's use this. Because the, the nation, at least, if not m- much of the world, is celebrating a Christian holiday, mm-hmm. and they don't know what they're celebrating. So now let's use an opportunity. Okay, hey, Lip, can I tell you the Christian story about this? And just in a, in a Gentile, non Oh, by the way, you Genti- guys are- Wait, in a Gentile or a Gentile? Did I say Gentile? I meant Gentile. <laughs> well, we are Gentile, so that works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's say it in a gentle manner. Not confrontational, like, oh, you guys are celebrating the wrong thing. You know, this mm-hmm, is our mm-hmm. holiday. Let me tell you the way it really is. No. Hey, while you're celebrating this, can I tell you the story behind it? And present it, the gospel story in love and compassion instead of, well, you know what? No, no, it's, it's not happy holidays. It's Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. it's happy holidays because you're Jewish mm-hmm. or because you're Islamic or because you just don't have any religion at all and mm-hmm. you don't believe in Christ. So I'm not going to expect you to embrace my understanding of the holiday. It's happy holidays. I can, that's fine. We're taking Christ out of Christmas. It's like, no, we're not taking Christ out of Christmas. He's already taken out of it. Mm-hmm. We're just trying mm-hmm. to find an opportunity now to use that for, Hey, can I just tell you the story and just leave it at that? And I, and I'm perfectly fine with calling it a holy day. 
Yeah. Like, happy, happy holidays. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, 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 and it is. And this is a Jewish holiday of Hanukkah going on. This is mm-hmm. Islamic holidays going on. Let's acknowledge the fact that not everybody is Christian. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to offend you by saying Merry Christmas when you don't believe in Christmas. So mm-hmm. sure, let's go happy holidays. That's cool. And now can I tell you what the hol- why the holidays are so happy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's have coffee and I'll share kind of my story about that. Exactly. Absolutely. So, and that gets into a whole other cultural thing, but why, why do we expect the world does worldly things like rejects Jesus? Like that's what they do. So now you're going to throw a fit because Starbucks is changing their cups up. Come on guys. Exactly. <laughs> that's not our fight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they took the 10 commandments out of our schools or, out, you know, prayer out of our schools. Like they're not Christians. So yeah. Yeah. What do you want them to, to, to yeah, do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the wrong battle. Good. Yeah. Cool. Wait, this is going to be fun. It's uh, this is a fun conversation. This is definitely, I mean, this could be a 12 week series in and of yeah, itself, <laughs> but yeah, I think we would just want to say, you know, thanks to our listeners who have, uh, I know for, for me, this is going to be the last, I, was this the last show that we're going to be having for 2021 then yeah. we're going to have a show next week. So this has been fun for me to finish out 2021. Hopefully this podcast is just a blessing for folks and just getting a different, you know, thing, supplementing their uh, discipleship in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Vinny, for being a part of this. I, it's been a lot of fun to have you uh, alongside for the last six months or more. We're looking forward to, to 2022. I hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas and thanks for being part of this with us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.